Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Well, we're back. We have taken a few weeks off due to some schedule demands and different things, but we're glad to continue on with a new episode this week. So thanks for joining us. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Before I start this week, I do want to pause and express sincere thanks to you. I did have received some various comments from people and a few notes even as well, and it's all very encouraging. And I am so glad you are enjoying the podcast, and I trust you're benefiting from the Word of God, and we will just continue to pray the Lord uses His Word and, and people are encouraged in Him. So this week, we will move on from the parables that we've been in in the past, in Luke 15, to another uh, parable that's immediately following in Luke 16. Now this parable, called the parable of the unjust steward, is often said to be the most difficult to interpret. And we're going to take a shot at it. The setting of the parable, as you remember, is back to uh, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus was having uh, fellowship and eating and talking with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees that were there reacted against that and held it against him and were critical. So he then told them, the Pharisees, a series of three parables. Uh, Each one had something that was lost, something that was found, and followed by a celebration. There was the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the story of the lost son, better understood as the story of the loving father. Now, there's no break in the text whatsoever, so without a break or a scene change, we move right on into chapter 16 and into our parable for this episode. So here's the story, beginning in Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking this stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So now let's make a few observations. Notice in uh, chapter 15, we're going to see the prodigal son. And here in chapter 16, the unjust steward. And there is no doubt that these two are connected. And there are some very distinct comparisons that can be made uh, that connect the story. So with the prodigal story in chapter 15, verse 11, it starts with a certain man, how he had two sons. Here in the unjust steward in Luke 16, it starts with a certain rich man. The son, a few verses later in uh, Luke 15, 13, wasted his wealth 
with prodigal living. And here we see the unjust steward being accused of wasting his master's wealth. And it's the exact same word uh, that is found in the, from the Greek text. Following that, we see in the prodigal story, verses 14 through 16, he runs into some serious consequences or some dire straits. Uh, he loses, you know, there's a famine that comes in the land and he loses his wealth and he's now connected and making a plan to be with this uh, Gentile and that's not working out. He's still very hungry. Uh, he's, he's really almost ready to starve to death. And here in chapter 16, verse 2, the unjust steward, uh, he sees that the master says, you're going to give an account for your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. So he's about to be out in the street. So he's in a, his back is up against the wall as well. Uh, another comparison, it says in uh, Luke 15, 17, the son, the younger son, when he came to himself, and then we saw this soliloquy, his thinking process that's laid out. And here in Luke 16, 3, in this parable, the steward said within himself, there it is again. And what's going to follow? A soliloquy. And we get to see again his exact thinking carried out. Uh, back in the prodigal story, then what the son does is he makes a plan, which involves uh, allows him for a chance for some physical survival. And he's going to do it kind of relying on, a re on some relationships, particularly with his father, as he remembers that his father's house and there's stewards there and, and so forth. And he's going to go back and he's going to, you know, play his, uh, has a plan and he's going to see if this works. And here in Luke 16, the steward, he says, I need a plan. What am I going to do? My master's taking the stewardship away. I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So he's thinking, how can he survive? And then he says, I've resolved what to do. And the, the conclusion of it is that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So his plan is also involving relationships, in this case of those who he's going to help. So then we see in both stories, the plan is carried out. The prodigal had a three-part speech, and he goes back. Here we see the plan carried out uh, with two debtors, and, it, and it, we assume he does this with all the debtors, but he, he has them pay, settle accounts at a significant bargain. And therefore, they're going to say, hey, this is generosity, thank you, and remember me, you know, and I have a need of a house. And then in the prodigal story, we have an unexpected element after that. We see the father... When the son is coming back with his plan, as we know, he went out, he ran to him, and he embraced him and loved him unconditionally. And the father restored him fully with the sandals and the ring and uh, the, the banquet and the robe and everything to be in the status of a son. And here the unexpected element in Luke 16 is in verse 9, which I verse 8, which I haven't read yet. So after he says, take your bill and write 80 to the, 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 the person who owed his master money, we read in verse 8, the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. He had positive things to say for the steward, but specifically because of his thinking, he dealt shrewdly. And Jesus adds, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light in verse 8. So the question to ask ourselves is, what exactly is the servant being commended for? And we see it's for his shrewdness. That word there is defined as being prudent or just denotes the wise and sensible manner in which one conducts himself and his affairs uh, here. Ryrie says what is commended is the ingenuity, not the dishonesty, of the steward in using his present opportunities to prepare for his future. So, in other words, he showed some pretty quick thinking. He was, you know, a shrewd person is looking for angles, surviving by his wits, planning ahead, uh, developing a plan, working the plan. And for this kind of thinking and effort, 
uh, that we see specifically in the soliloquy, this is what he was thinking. For that, he is praised by the master. Now, this is implying then the younger son in the prodigal story did the same. And we made that point that it out in the, at that time in Luke 15. He too was being wise and shrewd as he was hungry in the pig fields. And uh, he's planning ahead and he's working the angle and he's got it set and he's got what he's going to try and do, etc. So that would be, you know, we can see that as on a horizontal level as this is all horizontal. These are, this is a good thing. The prodigal story in Luke 15 will end with the spotlight on the father's love or on grace on a spiritual level. Here in the unjust steward in verse 8, we're going to see the master being praising the steward because of his street smarts and his shrewdness. So this is on a horizontal level. And then we get to verse 9 where Jesus starts making some specific application. He says, and I say to you, and remember these are the disciples from verse 1, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So he says, the sons of this world, those whose main concern is the here and now and the earthly and the horizontal, not spiritual, are contrasted here in verse 8 to the sons of light. These are believers, like 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 would remind us, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. So those who are regenerate are regenerate, have life in them, and are sons of light. And light is something that is often uh, speaks of truth. And so here we see this comparison to the sons of this world and the sons of this light and how the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of this light. And then Jesus went on to start applying that. Well, before we look into that uh, application more specifically, a term I want to just remind us of that's popular in our daily, that was uh, pretty heavy in current events a while back, is the term quid pro quo. It's a Latin term. It literally means something for something. Speaks of a reciprocal exchange, trading favors. I'll scratch, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, and the unjust servant here is doing just that. He's bargaining what we would call a classic quid pro quo. And uh, as was really the prodigal son, as, you're, as we're thinking how he comes back with nothing really to offer, uh, but he's seeking to find something for something there. But anyway, they both have really nothing to bargain with. Even the unjust steward is bargaining with his master's wealth. So this is all horizontal and just shrewdness trying to survive and being street smart. You know the saying with quid pro quo, sometimes we say, givers gain. I give you a deal, I mark your debt down, the unjust steward is saying, so then you remember me and receive me in your houses. So they are thinking something, we're getting something for something. And Jesus then says in verse 9, I say unto you, and so here comes the point, make friends for yourselves. And you know, the word yourselves is emphatic. It's like make friends for yourselves for yourselves. It sounds kind of selfish, kind of like the unjust steward, but we're going to see uh, that isn't what he's meaning, as we'll see. And he says, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. And what he means by unrighteous mammon here, the best way to take that is just that this is earthly horizontal value, uh, not of eternal value, just money here on earth. You know, uh, Philip says in his translation, money tainted as it is. You know, it reminds me of the story, you know, the joke of a guy who somehow was able to take something with him into heaven. He clung to it so tightly. And when they get to heaven and they open it up, it's like, hey, what did you bring? What was so important? And they open it up and they see a bag of gold. And, and they look at him and they go, this is just pavement. 
And that's a little humorous quip because, you know, heaven is where the streets are paved with gold. So he's this, this is unrighteous mammon. This isn't of any real eternal value. This is just earthly. And, and he says now, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous man and mammon so that for this reason, when it fails. Now, there's a textual variant here that's in the King James. You'll see that when you fail. But in all the other translations, uh, you're going to see things like when it fails, like the ESV or the New American Standard, or when it runs out, uh, the Net Bible has, or when it is gone, the NIV. So the idea is when that money fails, because money is temporal and it's not eternal, money does run out or it can fail. You can have a personal loss or there's an economic collapse. The point is, is it's unstable. When money fails, they may receive receive you. And the idea is when money fails, likely that's when you leave this earth. And so then the money's left behind, you go into a future and they may receive you. And the pronoun for they is actually just embedded in the Greek verb. So who are the they? Well, it's most obvious here in the context, they are the friends that you made for yourselves. So make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, so that when the money runs out or that, that whole stage is over, they may receive you into an everlasting home. The people you help will receive you into an everlasting home. This doesn't mean they grant entrance, they just thumbs up, thumbs down if you're saved or not, nothing like that. They're already there. And this is just a way of welcoming you in. Uh, and he's speaking here of an everlasting home, so the attention immediately goes to spiritual, eternal, vertical, as opposed to the horizontal emphasis of the sons of this world. So to the disciples to whom this is addressed, Jesus is saying, make friends for yourselves with unrighteous mammon. And this is in their Jewish framework. The disciples who were Jews were looking for a king and a kingdom. And so thinking in terms of their entering of the kingdom, these others would be there to receive them. Now, we can pause here for a minute and ask the question, how would they do this? How do they spend this natural, physical, earthly money uh, so that these people will receive them? And the text doesn't say here specifically, or does it? In other passages, I think we can get this clear understanding. Um, let me turn your attention first to 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. Here Paul is writing to church-age believers, but he says uh, in 1 Timothy 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So here Paul is saying, with an eye for the future, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share. And so that helps uh, establish a foundation, uh, a good foundation that you can take hold of when that life comes. So we see that in 1 Timothy 6, a New Testament teaching. We can even look at what's leading up to our parable in chapter 16 of Luke. Um, in chapter 12, <clears throat> Jesus gives the parable of the rich fool who had gathered his wealth, put it in barns, and said, oh, I have so much. I'm going to sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, you fool. You rich fool, you for tonight your soul could be required of you. And that's what really matters. And then he went on for several verses there in Luke 12, just like he does in Matthew 6. Take no thought for what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Remember how God takes care of the lilies and so forth. Um, and then he says in Luke 12, 32, uh, here's what he says. But seek the kingdom of God, and then all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in heaven uh, that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here he's encouraging us to focus these disciples on the kingdom coming and the eternal things and to even give alms and be generous, etc. Uh, and especially as it relates to meeting the needs of others. Luke chapter 14, a few chapters later, just one chapter before the prodigal story, um, he, gives an, uh, he gives some counsel to, to his disciples. He says to, to the one who invited him, he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also just invite you back and you be repaid. That's a quid pro quo. But Jesus goes on, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just when you enter in the kingdom. They cannot repay you. You make friends and you get nothing in return. You know, one more parable is in Matthew 25 and verse 34 through 40, and where uh, Jesus is talking there about the end times. They're asking about some things as it relates to the kingdom, and Jesus is talking about something that will happen when he returns to this earth. And now he's uh, giving um, uh, his, his judgment, so to speak, of the nations and of, of the Jews and so forth. And, and this is one of the things he uses the parable to say, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we do all of these things? And then he says in verse 40, the king will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So here's an eye for others, the needs of others, the helping of others, the concern for the justice of others, uh, and the care of others, etc. And so we see this: use your 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 all, use your money, your mammon for gen- generously and loving with re- and use them as resources to help others. So that brings me to another phrase: we think a quid pro quo, as that's what the unjust steward was doing. But another phrase that's kind of popular in our culture is pay it forward. Now, pay it forward is an expression for describing the beneficiary of a good deed. I, someone has done a good deed for me, and I repay the kindness to someone else instead of to the one who did the good deed to me. So I pay it forward to someone else. The simplest way to define pay it forward is that when someone does something for you, instead of paying that person back directly, you pass it on to another person instead. So what Jesus is saying in Luke 16, 9, is he's applying this parable to make friends for yourselves. The idea is doing through this generous, paying it forward, and then they will receive you and welcome you in heaven. But notice that's not material gain or things. It's going to be attaboys and appreciation. So yes, you gain friends for yourselves here, but why? And in heaven, those who you helped and those who you were generous with, those who benefited from that, they will show appreciation and say three cheers as we enter in, as these disciples would enter in, as we think of the application of this parable to them specifically. 
Um, it's interesting that the term for everlasting homes is tabernacle, which is a which really is a specific earthly tent and temporary dwelling. So when you get into eternity, it's an everlasting tent, and perhaps there he's just saying, when you're in eternity, you're in the you're in a place of righteousness and justice and harmony and peace, and where Jesus Christ is. And so it doesn't matter what you're going to, what kind of dwelling you're going to have. The material just doesn't matter. But at any rate, what really matters is people and relationships, and there they are to gladly see you and glad to welcome you. It's kind of the opposite of Isaiah 14, verse 12, uh, thinking of that in 14 through 16. Uh, this is a story in the Isaiah, I'll just quick say how there was a, a great Babylonian king and who had caused a lot of uh, problems and consternation. It was fierce, and the Bible's going to show about when he enters into, into Sheol or into hell. And nevertheless, he's, the Bible says, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you, and they will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Notice they're perplexed, but they don't welcome him, but they look at him and say, Wow, well, who, you know, look what happened to him. But here the opposite would be true in Luke 16, verse 9. You can be entered, received, and welcomed into the kingdom by the friends that you use your unrighteous mammon to assist and pay it forward with. So, pay it forward. Freely you receive, there's a song we sing, freely you give. So it's really the idea here of grace, and it's a radical notion of mammon. Don't hang on tightly. Give generously toward others, especially the less fortunate. And, you know, we could even apply this as we think of Christians and tipping when we're in a restaurant, you know. Uh, this would be the idea. Pay it forward or show generosity, etc. But actually, seriously, um, God does love a cheerful giver. And we're other person-minded, we see, and the Spirit of God would want us to be unselfish. Why? Because we've received oodles of grace. We're looking forward to eternity, to what really matters in that future home there, and that's what's coming inspires us in the what is now. So grace, we know what it means, undeserved kindness. God has bestowed grace, and it changes us. It changes how you see things, how you think, how you treat your money even. You know, we first see that we're all sinners. We're all undes we're deserving of punishment as we have violated God's standards. We're guilty of so many things in our thinking and in our actions, and we're worthy of the penalty or the justice of God, which is separation from him forever, uh, separated from him and all that he is. Yet God loves us anyway knowing we're all of these things. And he proved that love on the cross as Jesus cried out as he died there for you and I and said, it is finished. As he paid in full all the judicial and took on the, the judicial penalty of our sin and took on the wrath of God. The love of God extends directly to you. He loved you and Jesus died for you and me and we can be forgiven and cleansed and be forever his as he is resurrected now, and he's alive, and he's offering us life based on his death, based on his merit, based on his work, and his it is finished. And there we see our the love of God. Here we are at our very worst. Sin exposed, we're guilty, we're dead in the water. And this is where the I love you breaks in and becomes real at the cross. And by faith, as John 3.16 always reminds us, whosoever believes in him, trusting what Jesus has done for you because it's now available, have you ever believed so that you can say that you know you have eternal life and will never perish? Do you know for sure that when you die, you will be welcomed into heaven? If not, why not? It's available. What more could Christ do for you?
What is left to be done? It is finished. And so God is wanting to treat you in oodles of grace and goodness and undeserved kindness and favor and give us a gift of salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. There's nothing we do to pay for it. There's nothing we do to earn it. There's nothing we do to deserve it. It's clearly a gift provided by Christ based on love and available. And when you receive that by faith, you know then you have new life. And you have a new destiny of heaven and a new identity in Christ. And this is for sure. And all this is waiting for you in heaven. Which means the here and now, here? Well, what can I do with my pavement? Quid pro quo? Please. That's horizontal only. There's no grace in that. In fact, uh, Jesus reminds us that in Luke 6.32, and he was encouraging his disciples about what it's like to be have life in the kingdom and how we can prepare for that. He says, you know, but if you love those who love you, what credit, literally grace, is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who only do good to you, what credit or grace is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit, grace, is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And so we're told, pay it forward. This is grace. Look how you've been treated. Look how you've, what you've been given. Look at your eternal destiny. Look at the security of that. Look at all the spiritual blessings you can have now. Look at the word of God, which is absolutely true and guides our thinking and is of light so we can be children of light. And now we have a whole new way of seeing things, a whole new way of seeing life as it's tied to grace. Because religion requires, works requires, performance requires, but grace inspires. Let me... Leave us with this verse in 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, Paul says, but at the things which are not seen. Notice what we're looking at. Not things which are seen, but things which are not seen. Eternal things. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we now see things in a different light. We're not seeing the temporary. We're now seeing the eternal. Not the earthly we're focused on, but the heavenly not horizontal, but vertical, and there's a difference. So what do you see? Not with your natural eyes, but with your spiritual eyes. We see what God has said, what God is presenting, the truth that God has laid out, the eternal life that we have, the grace that we've been bestowed with, the forgiveness of sins, and all the encouragements, and even the fellowship and the new family and the new identity that we find with one another. Boy, may grace thrill us. And it can change how we think. It can change how we see things, even other people, and even our mammon. Maybe with grace in this new sight, maybe, we'll see the, the, maybe you'll see the addicts in your life with empathy. And someone, they see you as someone who tries to understand their struggle. Maybe as we see this grace and the pay it forward, maybe we won't make so many sweeping generalizations of people or unfounded assumptions of individuals or even whole groups. Maybe we won't be full of such stuffiness and controlled properness, focusing on externals, realizing the world is not impressed with a religious version of itself. But the hilarity of grace, the cheerful heart of a cheerful giver that's responding vertically because we love him because he first loved us, now that appeals, and that's an attraction for those who don't know the Lord. 
God loves a cheerful giver. And you and I, we can only be cheerful as he stirs our hearts with his truth about his love, his amazing grace, his son, and all that's related there. Well, in our story, in uh, Luke chapter 16, he goes on in verses 10 through 13 and makes a few more applications from this by just talking about being a faithful steward. He says in verse 10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in what is much. The least is the pavement. It's the, the, it's the right, unrighteous mammon. And if we're faithful in that human, speaking of wealth and money, then he can give us, uh, um, be, we can be faithful in much. In fact, verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches, the treasures in heaven? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And then he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and the, or the, love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And hopefully when we see that and realize God is a God of grace and we can just fall at his grace. Now, to end the parable, verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided him. It's a, it's a word in the Greek that actually has something to do with the nose. They, they, they snubbed their nose at him and they scorned him. What a bunch of baloney. You're full of it. And he said to them in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men. As they indeed taught, those who were wealthy were more successful for God. The people who were wealthier were the ones that were most likely to go to heaven. Um, You justify yourselves all externally, Jesus goes on. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men, pavement, is an abomination in the sight of God. It's just the opposite. We want to see things as God sees them, see the heavenly things, the eternal things. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. In fact, Jesus ends by saying in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. And since John the Baptist, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. We know dispensationally, Jesus and the disciples preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom is ready. The Messiah is here. And everyone, he said, is pressing into it, or the idea is urgently invited to enter it. And these Pharisees were not getting it. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they were there. They were listening. They were impressed. They were wanting more. They saw things from the spiritual way of seeing things, the spiritual value. So may we see again when we are saved, we have grace orientation in our thinking. The Lord wants to just even change our perspective, and he'll do that faithfully as we just respond to him. A little here, a little there. Understand more and keep on uh, realizing how God wants to shape our lives to his glory. Well, I hope the parable made sense, and we'll now end with prayer. Father, may you just allow the word of God to continue to shape our thinking to just fill our minds with the things of Christ. Thank you for your grace. It's foreign to our natural understanding, but there it is. And you show it and you teach us. May the love for you and grace and your grace, may it motivate our hearts, your love for us rather. Motivate our hearts, Father. May we see the things that are unseen, have an eye for eternity as just as where, where you are, where you're seated, and all the things that are related to that. We thank you that we can look forward to that kingdom with you, time with you, where there is equity and justice and harmony and love. And so may all this compel us, Father, by your grace, make us cheerful givers even as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, thank you for listening yet again, and we sure appreciate your comments and your uh, if you have any questions or anything like that, you can email us at uh, coolhandgrace at gmail.com. And you can also like us or promote us on your podcast app. That's always very helpful as well. So thank you. And until next time, remember where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.